Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Laura, for those of you who don't know me, and I have the honor and privilege of opening God's Word this morning with you guys and kind of talking about it a little bit. Um, today's passage is kind of a funny passage, right? We have this weird road trip with a whole bunch of names and places that sounds like it could rapidly become some kind of coming-of-age story with a Tom Petty soundtrack. And then it smash cuts to some dude falling out of a window because Paul doesn't know when to shut up. And oh yeah, this dude happens to die and then get resurrected and then Paul just keeps on talking. Craziest road trip story ever. And I don't know about you guys, but I've had some crazy road trips. I've had poison oak so bad I looked like a burn victim. There was breaking down halfway up a mountain because of a bad transmission in our car. And oh yeah, there was breaking down in the intersection with the bad transmission in the car. I've traveled in a clown car full of college kids. I've traveled in a van full of college kids. But I've never had somebody die and come back to life. So I'm pretty sure Paul wins on that one. So in our passage today, we're going to unpack how this crazy road trip ends up with some crazy opportunities to represent Jesus and what he was doing in Paul and the people around him. So here we go, verse one, when the uproar had ended, ellipses, dot, 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 because that word when points us back to what has come previously, what Tim talked about last week. This group of believers with Paul gets wrapped up in a riot in Ephesus. This riot starts because of a silversmith and a couple of his buddies getting disgruntled because their idol-making business is, well, put upon by Paul's truth. Paul's friends, Gaius and Aristarchus, are seized, and then a city clerk stands up and through logical arguments, go figure, helps disperse the crowd. So that's where we're coming from. So let's see where we're going. Let's continue on. Verse one. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and, after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled throughout the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. And I'm going to end it in the middle of verse three. And I'm gonna pause here and just say, I love this continued picture of Paul's character that Luke is painting here in Acts. A massive hullabaloo occurs, and for those of you that don't speak Southern, hullabaloo means an uproar. A massive hullabaloo occurs, and rather than being fearful or getting angry, Now, running away, Paul's first move is to gather the believers together and encourage them. And he does this in the face of adversity and persecution in a situation that could honestly have been a lot worse. And this is a continued state of being for Paul. He's traveling around the province of Macedonia and Greece, and he's about lifting high the name of Jesus and pointing others to him. In hard circumstances, In difficult situations, Paul's knee-jerk reaction is to gather and encourage. Paul sees a situation that is discouraging, a situation that could persuade people to lose confidence and hope in Jesus and decides to take action. He doesn't selfishly recoil to make himself feel better. He reaches out to bolster the spiritual well-being of his fellow siblings in Christ. So what does this look like for us today in 2023? Well, when somebody's going through a hard time, do you speak words of hope? When somebody's struggling, do you point them back to the truth of God's word? When somebody's lost a loved one or is just going through it, do you step in and offer comfort? When hard circumstances hit, how do you respond? How do you interact with those around you? How do you encourage the people around you? And really importantly, how do you receive encouragement? 
Uh, so during the Christmas holidays this last year, I, like many people, decided to travel on Christmas Day. Tickets went on sale months in advance, and my flight was going to leave around 1.30 that afternoon, so I had plenty of time to enjoy services here at COV for the first time ever during the Christmas season. I got to talk to some friends, and I got over to the airport, no problem. I checked my luggage, talked to some friendly people in line, because I'm an extrovert, and I got to my gate and through security with plenty of time to spare, and the entire time I was thinking, huh, this is easier and smoother than I thought it would be. I was traveling southwest. <laughs> and for those of you that know what happened this last Christmas, traveling southwest was not a good option. Famous last words. The reality of that day was that I was stuck at the airport for over eight hours on Christmas Day, unable to see my family. I had to navigate through the highs and lows of multiple delays until my flight was finally canceled. Then there was the saga of trying to find my lost baggage, which I eventually did. And there was endless rounds of trying to figure out what was going on, trying to talk to everybody, and generally just trying to navigate absolute mayhem. But one thing that stands out in the experience of, those, uh, of, of this event was the conversations. See, when things go wrong, I tend to get really upset and frustrated, like most people do. But after sitting there for a second and being mad, I just remember going, all right, Lord, let's do this. And I just felt this unnatural calm settle on my soul. I was still tired, I was still frustrated, and honestly, so was everyone else, but my perspective shifted. It shifted from how upset I was to how can I represent Christ in this moment. And surprisingly, my newfound attitude of wanting to encourage people was reciprocated. And in a really tough circumstance, those conversations became a highlight. It was like we were all in it together and trying to keep each other's spirits up. So what's my point? Um, being encouraging is a choice. And it's one born out of a relationship with Christ. Encouragement is something Christ does in you. It's a gift. And so here we have Paul purposing to equip and encourage those that he's encountering after coming from a really difficult situation. He's not letting the circumstance color his response. He's allowing Jesus to change his response. Let's continue in verse 3. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail from Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, and Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby and Timothy also, and Tychicus and Tromphemus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Um, if you're anything like me, your eyes just glazed over. Like, I'm thinking about lunch, and I just read this. But there's three points I really want to make about this section to give you context to what's happening, and we're going to rest here for a while as we kind of walk through them. But before I get to those points, I want to give us a, an idea of where we are, because we have a ton of names and a ton of places, and if you're anything like me, I'm like, I have no idea where any of this is and why any of this might be important. So I'm a visual thinker, and I'm going to bust out a map, because maps are fun. Look at that, a happy little map. I feel like Bob Ross. Um, <laughs> So we're, we're over here in Ephesus, and Paul says, all right, let's go up through Macedonia, and eventually he winds up in Greece. And there's a lot of arguments and commentators about what route he took, maybe he went over land, maybe he went by sea, and honestly, it doesn't really matter. 
through a series of events, Paul winds up in Greece. And some commentators think he, he, think he winds up in Corinth, but again, we don't know. The Bible doesn't talk about it. So they're in Greece, and then Paul says, well, let's go to Syria, which is my next slide on this map. So we're trying to get from Greece to Syria, and the most direct route is via boat. But then it says that some kind of plot rose up, and the Bible is kind of mute on the particulars of this plot. We don't get a Tom Cruise foiling an assassination attempt, a la Mission Impossible, or Paul getting kidnapped in a Liam Neeson taken speech. We simply get part of a sentence that once again, Paul is diverted. And he ends up going the long way round, which is my next slide. He's going all the way around, up back through Macedonia, probably hitting those cities, and he winds up at Troas. And as a note, Troas was a really important and popular Greek port city under the rule of the Romans. And it handled all of the sea routes between Macedonia and the Western Asia provinces, which is all of that landmass on the right side of the map. It also had a ton of connecting roads, and the, the fact of the matter that Troas was really, really easy to travel in and out of. And nerd fun fact, it's like four miles from the famed city of Troy, which I thought was really cool. So what's my point with showing you all this map? My point is that once again, Paul has his journey diverted and interrupted. And here I'm seeing Paul's willingness for his plans to be shaken up. He still intends to go to Syria, but is okay going a different direction. A few weeks ago, we, we talked about what our biggest takeaway from Acts was, and this is mine. Paul is okay with his plans getting disrupted. I'm not. I said at the top of the sermon that I have been on some crazy road trips, and the fact is that road trips end up being crazy when things don't go according to plan, which shockingly is a lot of times. Being broken down on the side of the mountain and stranded for hours is not usually part of anybody's plan, but the reality of that particular story was Christ was shared with a woman dying of cancer that we never would have encountered had everything gone smoothly. So when things start going wrong, my knee-jerk reaction in my own strength is to get angry, is to get upset. But whether it's God or God using circumstances, I'm usually unwilling to let go of my plans in my own strength and in my own pride. But that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus helps me see the amazing opportunities that could be by getting disrupted. So what is our attitude when our plans get disrupted? Where do you focus? Is it on how things are going wrong or is it on how is there an opportunity for me to share and represent Jesus? So we see Paul getting diverted, and we get to see the byproduct of Paul getting rerouted. He's picking up people along the way, brothers in Christ that are, have, and will help him in his ministry. He's getting the boys together, the bands back together again. He's making an entourage. And I don't know about you guys, but I think of that HBO show Entourage or Taylor Swift and her posse of people, and then I start thinking about Bad Blood and I get the song stuck in my head. Yeah, you're welcome. But unlike Taylor Swift, which I never thought I would say in a sermon, uh, unlike Taylor Swift, Paul and his entourage of men are not about beefs with people. They're about Jesus. So who are these guys? Well, there's a lot of speculation as to who some of them were, but one thing is agreed upon by most commentators. These were solid brothers in Christ and most likely were representatives from the Gentile churches Paul had helped start in Macedonia and the surrounding areas. 
Many commentators also believe that these men were accompanying Paul on his return to Jerusalem with a relief fund for the church in Jerusalem from the churches there in Macedonia. So who are these guys? Well, here's what we know. Sopater could be the same guy mentioned in Romans 16, and the only thing that we know about him was that he was a Jew. Aristarchus is only ever mentioned back in Acts 19 during the riot in Ephesus when he and Gaius are seized. Secundus is never mentioned. This is the only mention of who he is. And the only note I found on him is Secundus was a popular slave name, meaning second. But Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Tromphemus are a little bit more well-known to us. Gaius, who was also seized in the riot in Ephesus, was described as hospitable. And John, the apostle, in his third letter, wrote the entire letter to Gaius, describing him as a dear friend. Timothy is the well-known Timothy that Paul has a deep and meaningful relationship with and calls him like a son. Tychicus is also a familiar character. He's mentioned in a lot of Paul's letters and described as a dear friend and a faithful servant and a fellow worker for the sake of the gospel. And he would oftentimes take these letters that Paul is penning and deliver them and encourage the believers at these churches. Tromphemus, likewise, is also mentioned as somebody who would travel with Paul and help him in his ministry in furthering the gospel. So why is all of this important? Paul is surrounding himself with trusted and faithful, encouraging believers. He's surrounding himself with people who are in pursuit of Christ. And really quickly, when I look at other people following Christ, my own walk, my own pursuit of him is strengthened. I have friends from around the world that I only talk to maybe once or twice a year, but every time I encounter them, I'm so encouraged by their faithful service to the Lord in their churches and in their ministries. And hear me, this isn't just something for the apostles. Having a close group of people surrounding you, it's not just for pastors and staff members. Paul is modeling what it looks like to have a deep Christian relationship with a lot of different people. Can we be real? The the last few years have been really hard. Between the pandemic and relationship changes and, and walking through hard things, I know for me, I've needed faithful brothers and sisters in Christ to continually point me back to Jesus. And I think I will always need that in my life. We say this a lot at COV, we never graduate from the gospel. We will never stop needing to be reminded of the extraordinary gift of grace that Jesus gave us. We will never stop needing to be pointed to and reminded of him and his sacrifice and what a gift it is. But guess what? Doing faith in a bubble is super hard. And I'd contend it's nigh impossible. We never graduate from needing the gospel, but it's really hard to progress and grow in your faith without community. Community keeps us grounded and can help share the burden during crazy times. Community coming alongside of you can be encouraging and filled with hope. People, brothers and sisters in Christ, are a huge part of the process of being reminded about who Jesus is. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 puts it this way. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. It's really important to surround yourself with people that are encouraging you to pursue Christ. Encouragement, though, can be misrepresented. Encouragement means that people don't always say nice things. 
is people being willing to speak truth into you. And hear this, it's your willingness to receive and hear and put into practice the truth that you're hearing. No one likes being called out. Nobody likes having their flaws or their struggles highlighted, but when a trusted brother and sister in Christ calls you out on truth, it's because they want you to grow. And when you're willing to hear truth, receive it, and put it into practice, guess what? You do grow. So there's a, there's a Christian author by the name of Christina Fox who often writes for Desiring God and uh, Gospel Coalition and a couple of other articles. And she defines encouragement this way, and I, I love what she says. In our world, encouragement often looks like fans in a stand watching sports game. Go Vikings. They cheer and they shout. They might say, you've got this, you can do it, go, go, go. And when such statements are invigorating, they are different than the encouragement we see in the Bible. The biblical encouragement that we see is more than just saying nice things to somebody. Its purpose is deeper than boosting somebody's self-esteem by telling them, you can do it. The Greek word for encourage is parakaleo, which means to call alongside. It's used in the New Testament to describe not only giving comfort to somebody, but it also involves exhortation, urging, strengthening, and even appealing. Biblical encouragement is harder than saying nice things. Biblical encouragement is being willing to point back to truth and being willing to have that truth change you. So Paul is surrounding himself with believers who are encouragers, truth pointers. But really importantly, there's another guy that joins this group of seven. There's an eighth guy that joins in, and he's not named in this group of believers on this journey, but it's inferred. See, Luke is one of the people that joins in, and how do we know this? Well, we know that Luke writes Acts. And if we look at verse five, we see that he changes tenses from he and they to us and we. So let's take a look. These men went on to Troas and waited for us, but we sailed from Philippi after the festival. So we now have Luke joining in. We have his eyewitness account rather than a secondhand recording of Paul's journey, and this is gonna be really important in a moment, but we'll get there. So we've got Paul being willing to be diverted. We've got Paul gathering together a solid group of brothers in Christ, and one of those brothers in Christ is Luke. And this leads me to my last point in this section. We see that Luke and Paul are celebrating Passover in Philippi. At first glance, this seems a bit funky. How can a follower of Christ celebrate a traditional Jewish holiday? This is once again showing the ability to truthfully worship Christ while still maintaining cultural ties. A couple of weeks ago, Tim mentioned uh, in the passage that we were studying that, that Paul had taken a vow and we see him cutting off his hair. And this was a point that we made that this isn't Paul keeping militant tradition, but rather it is an extension of how Paul is worshiping Jesus. So in today's terms, finding joy and worship in hymns or familiar passages and phrases or even in traditional church liturgy as a way to worship Christ is fine. It's the moment that we hang on to those traditions as preeminent, as more important, or think that they somehow justify us or save us that issues arise. Traditions can be an opportunity to worship Christ, and participating in them can also be a powerful tool to reach others. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all means, possible means, I might save some. 
Um, several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel with my grandmother, um, and there probably is a couple of cheesy photos of us. There we are. She lives on the opposite side of the country, and I don't get to see her very often. And so when she invited me to accompany her to Israel, I immediately jumped at the chance to go with her. The only catch was is she is very Catholic, and she was going with about 60 other people who are also practicers of Catholicism. Now, I don't really agree with everything that Catholicism teaches, but I do agree with my grandmother that Jesus is the point. And I was and am so encouraged by her faith and how she continues to grow in him. And so it was more important to me to invest in my relationship with her than that we agreed on everything. So a big part of this trip was participating in a lot of traditions and rituals that I had no connection to, but were vastly impactful to her. So participating in traditions because it's important to somebody else or because you find great worship in them as a way to represent and connect with Jesus is a thing that I see Paul doing here. It's a thing that we can engage in with a heart that is about worshiping and honoring Jesus. Verse seven. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking till midnight. I can make so many jokes here about how, aren't you glad we're not going to be here till midnight, or when you do come to COV, you know you're not going to have the world's longest sermon or the world's longest community group. But I will merely say that while I'm a motor mouth, I think once again, Paul has me beat. The really important thing here in this verse is that Paul is passionate about equipping and encouraging those in Troas. And with what little time he has left with them, he wants to make it count. Paul's passionate about Jesus. He's passionate about equipping those who believe in how to follow the Lord and equipping them in how to follow the Lord. So he talks for a really long time. And just a quick note, we see that this is the first instant that the church, the way, the early believers are celebrating together the first day of the week, which is a Sunday. And in the ancient calendar, that's the first day of the week. And in the ancient calendar as well, it was also a work day for most people. So Luke is painting this picture. It's been a long day of work, and now we have an even longer night of Paul talking. And this is gonna set us up for what happens next. So let's continue on in verse eight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sitting, sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. So Luke, a doctor, a physician, writes this section and it kind of reads like field notes. He's describing the scene and he's describing this young man's death. They're packed into an upstairs room, which was most likely hot and maybe not a lot of air due to the fact that a lot of lamps were burning and maybe there were a lot of people in there too. And this guy, Eutychus, is sitting in the window, which, side note, is the best place for airflow. I'm totally about that. And he's fallen asleep due to the late hour and the lull of Paul's droning voice. Bueller, Bueller. Anybody? So really quickly, how many people here enjoy naps? Come on, parents, naps, yeah. As a resident insomniac, I enjoy a really good nap. But let me just say, when I pick a good nap spot, I'm not picking a third story window, I'm picking the couch or the bed. 
But we see here that Luke is writing his field notes. He's describing what's happened, and his expertise as a doctor comes into play. He could tell without a shadow of a doubt whether somebody was dead or not, which adds a credibility and a weight to his declaration that Eutychus was indeed dead. First time. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Is it just me, or does it seem like Luke's focus is more on Paul talking than on the fact that a dead dude is alive? <laughs> like, if this was me, I'd be focused on the fact that a resurrection just happened. Dude's dead and is now alive. No? Okay. And every time I've seen a resurrection in the Bible, it's been a big deal. If I look at the New Testament, there's three instances in Jesus' ministry. There's the widow of Nain, her son, Jerusalem's daughter, Lazarus of Bethany, and Jesus raises them all to life. And it's all about seeding faith and pointing towards who he is. And then in most of the Gospels, and all of the Gospels, we get Jesus raised to life, which is a huge deal because without that, well, sin and death are not defeated. And then in Acts 9, we get Peter raising, raising Tabitha to life, which is about spreading the gospel in that area. Every time that there's been a resurrection, it's been a big deal. So why does this feel like an afterthought? I'd contend it's because Eutychus being alive wasn't the point. The point here is that all of those present were spiritually alive. Paul performing the miracle isn't the point. Paul is, it's, the point is Paul's continued faithfulness to equip those around him. The point of Paul raising this young man to life is to point to God's sovereignty and power as an encouragement and comfort to all those who witnessed it and would hear about it. See, for the early church, there was a ton of persecution and people out to destroy their faith. Paul's entire ministry is filled with this. And having such a public display of God's power and love presented through Paul's care of both this young man and his care to equip those that he's encountering is a powerful message of hope and comfort. See, miracles are a big deal, but they're never the point. Miracles reinforce and encourage our faith because it reminds us that God is sovereign. Paul's also using this opportunity to demonstrate the freedom that we have in Christ. See, to any Jews that witnessed this or were hearing about this, Paul touches a dead guy and then immediately goes and eats and teaches. And for somebody who's a, of Jewish descent or Jewish heritage, that's a big deal. See, in Jewish law and Jewish tradition, touching a dead body made you unclean. You can read Numbers 19 to see the huge ritual that they had to go through. And here we see Paul hugging a dead guy, wrapping his arms around him. And such was the process to make yourself clean that many Jews thought touching a dead body was kind of like a taboo thing. It was a no-go. It was almost forbidden. And we kind of see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which a lot of us are familiar with. We see a priest and a Levite passing by on the other side of the road as this dude is almost dead because they weren't willing to risk inconvenience. Paul is willing to risk inconvenience for the sake of the gospel. Are you? Are you willing to stand with Jesus as a person, willing to point towards truth rather than passing by on the other side of an opportunity? People being spiritually alive is a big deal. 
Seeking for people to go from death to life through Jesus is the point, and lifting up and building up our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is our job and our purpose. See, the biggest miracle in the history of the world isn't a resurrection. It's not even the resurrection. It's the fact that Jesus graciously invites us to have a relationship with him. And they were greatly comforted. See, the reality of this crazy impromptu road trip was Jesus' name was lifted high. That hope was spread. And while this trip and its various crazy stories were unexpected, the result was that people who were once spiritually dead were now alive and were equipped to encourage. So I'm gonna leave you guys with some questions as we close. We talked about Paul being diverted for the sake of the gospel. We talked about being in community and allowing others to build you up and for you to build others up. So here are my questions. How can God redeem your plans being interrupted? How can God use you to bless those around you by choosing encouragement? Are you passionate about building up hope and comfort and truth in others' lives? So this week, I'd highly encourage you to be in prayer about how you can build up the people around you. There are a lot of people at COV that are going through it. We just had a memorial yesterday and it was beautiful and it was such a beautiful representation of the church coming together and offering hope and comfort. Encouraging people around you can be as simple as texting them. Hey, how can I pray for you? Inviting them out to a meal, giving them a hug. But it takes intentionality. And so my prayer for all of us is that we'd intentionally be building up hope and truth in each other's lives. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the fact that uh, you are the greatest encouragement. God, thank you that because of you, because of your sacrifice, we get to walk in hope and comfort and truth. And so God, I pray for us that as we go about our week, that we wouldn't just hear this and go away and do nothing, but that we'd be people who are equipped to encourage. And I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.